Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data and data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. This episode, Genealysis 30th, is a bit different from the previous ones. CEO Raphael Rosengarten has not one, not two, but three guests, including the entire leadership team at Genialis. The gang discusses Genialis's twin quests to build a great place to work and a business that makes a positive impact on the world. Come on in and have a listen. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Talking Precision Medicine. It's a real pleasure to have you here for a special episode. Today, we have not one, not two, but three guests. And these guests are my dear friends and co-leaders of Genialis. We have our whole executive leadership team here today. We have Tiasha Crisper-Coutin, who's our Chief Operating Officer, Luca Alsets, who's our Chief Discovery Officer, runs both projects and collaborations, and my co-founder and Chief Technology Officer, uh, Micha Stajahar. This is going to be a little bit different than our, our usual conversations where we have an outside guest and talk about their company and their vision of the future. Uh, today, we want to take the opportunity to introduce you all to Genialis, to go a little bit deeper, to look under the hood and see what really makes us tick. So guys, thanks all for joining me. I think we have uh, really a lot to tell to tell our listening audience. Thanks for having us, Rafe. So the first thing I want to do today is, is just let people know a bit more about the company. You know, if you go to on our, our website, you'll see that that our mission is to essentially deliver on the promise of precision medicine, to deliver hope and benefit to patients. And the way we do this is by developing biomarkers that help guide therapy in, in the space of oncology. But the mission and vision is out there for everyone to see. I think what's harder for people to appreciate is how you achieve that. And so, Tiasha, maybe we can start with you and talk a little bit about the company itself, you know, what we're building and, and who we are as people, as a team. So, yes, to me and I think to our whole team, Genialis is all about people first. So that's our mission, but that's also our first and most important value. And we're fully aware, we're nothing without our team. We're nothing without the people who built Genialis. And we want those people to enjoy coming to work. We want them to be their full authentic selves here. And uh, we want everyone to achieve the most that they can in life together with us. So on top of this being a really cool place to work where we all feel like, you know, we belong and uh, we can do what uh, we really want to do in life. We also want everyone to feel like they can still have a balance in their life uh, so that they cherish going to work and cherish doing something important, contributing to such an important mission that we have, but that they also have the right to, you know, switch off after work and, uh, be present uh, with their families the way we want them to be present when they're here with us in the office. So the second value that we have is ownership. And I really believe that Genialis wouldn't function the way that it does and we wouldn't do the work so well that it does if it weren't for ownership. Because we are a remote-first company. We have been for a while, uh, even before covid And, you know, that requires a lot of ownership from everyone. It uh, requires the managers to be able to trust their team members. And it requires every person on the team to know what their responsibilities are, to be able to make their own decisions and, you know, take responsibility for what they do. And that way we can all work together so well, even if we're not in the same place, even if nobody's micromanaging anyone, and we can just trust each other to get 
stuff done. And uh, this is how we do work here. And I think this is a very important part of uh, how we can be successful. It's just that we trust everyone and we rely on that trust and we get everything done. The next thing that is also very important is constructiveness. So we don't think about you know, problems in a way that, oh, I can't get this done. This is too complicated. This is not my problem. This belongs to the other team. And what you think about is how can I make stuff happen? How can I help the company and you know, sometimes that means doing things that aren't directly your responsibility. And sometimes it means doing things for your colleague who has an important deadline and you put your stuff away and you help them out. But in the end, everybody profits from that. So I think that's really important that we just help each other and uh, always have that positive mentality of getting stuff done. And the fourth value, we only have four. So, you know, we wake up team members in the middle of the night and they will always know the four values is honesty. That's it's actually most... part of the onboarding for new employees is that we send a team <laughs> to their house and shake them until they, you know, shake them away. Can you name the four values? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should go around the office and check the assumption, but I really do think people know these values. And uh, yeah, so the honesty seems easy, seems something, you know, we all want to do in life in, in, in every situation. But I think this is really the toughest one. Because it's not about being honest, you know, when it's sunny and when everything is great and saying, oh, Mika, you did this so well. And hey, Luca, so nice doing work with you. But it's about when you mess up and something went wrong and you need to go to your manager and say, so I did this and I don't know how to fix it. Can you help me? Or this is how I want to fix it. But, you know, I, I don't know what the consequences will be. And owning up. And just being honest in those types of situations, or maybe when your colleague does something wrong and they're not aware of that, and you need to, you know, gather the courage and be honest and tell them, we need to do this in a different way. So this is the value that I think really contributes to, um, to our culture, to the way we do things. And it's, it's a hard one to, to, to keep up with sometimes, but one of the most important ones for sure. I've been doing a lot of recruitment interviews recently, and invariably, we always start talking about the science and I, you know, can get carried away in all the scientific details and so on. But I noticed that I really light up when I talk about the company culture. So I feel that this is at the core of my definition of success, is that we've built this wonderful place, wonderful workplace, and uh you know, a, a team that I truly cherish. I don't know if it's an adage or if there's a famous quote around it, but you know, the way that I see it is that you build a great company and the great business follows, right? I have no interest in building a huge business where the company itself is, you know, broken or not, not fulfilling for people. That's the horse that we're putting before the cart instead of the other way around. Um, what I love about, you know, having a very well-established framework around our values is that there are only four and Tiasha, I think you did a nice job of, of kind of defining them, but each of us can interpret them or, or experience them in our own way. And, you know, we sometimes each have our, our favorite and the favorite can change. You know, just like if you have four kids, you might have a favorite on any given day. Um, but I'm curious to, to hear more from Luca and Mika, you know, which of these values resonate with you most right now, given whatever you're going through in, in sort of this stage of the company? 
right now to me it's definitely people first and that's because it guides so many of our decisions that we make every day it in biology this translates to biology first it's how we approach the science that we do right we model biology in technology it guides our technological development as well because it means that we work with clinical data with people data directly and those data sets are typically small so it really goes into all aspects of our business luca what are you connecting with people first definitely is uh makes the top of the list any day of the week sometimes uh it is difficult for the leaders particularly to take that to heart and really embody this value because it also in entails taking good care of yourself and and this is sometimes what i struggle with so that's why it's really always helpful to know that the others will not only understand when we take the time for ourselves but also expect that again having a this um, very supportive work environment to me is a number one priority just for the sake of roundness i'll speak up for some of the other the the red-headed stepchild of the values so normally if you ask me this i would say either ownership or constructiveness ownership is super important to me because as the company grows and and for those listening out there we recently announced a, a close a successful fundraising round and so we are growing luca mentioned that he's doing a lot of you know job interviews these days he's not looking for a new position he's looking to fill some so you know ownership to me the shorthand for that is own your shit it means that that you're going to be the expert of your domain you're not required to be the expert of everything but the expert of your domain and why that's important is it means that people can work autonomously it means that we the leadership don't have to micromanage we don't have to put our fingers in every pot we can trust one another to go out and just get the job done and i think tiashi you said that really nicely it's it's all anchored in trust so normally that's that might be my favorite you know 3 days of the week the other 3 days of the week it, it might be constructiveness and constructiveness again to me is it's all about solution finding um anyone who knows me knows that i'm not content unless i'm solving a problem um my first reaction to to adversity is to start thinking how we get around it or over it or through it but on the 7th day of the week and and it turns out that's today the one that's really resonating with me is honesty and it's because of the way that i interpret honesty is is also meaning scientific integrity right it's not just how we interact with one another it's how we do not put out shoddy science and that's important as as we'll hopefully get to in this conversation you know our product is essentially aimed at building tools for clinical decision support right tools to allow doctors to make better treatment decisions for patients to get better drugs or access to the right drugs you can't mess around you can't get it wrong and so doing great science is important and i think i may be paraphrasing me or maybe i'm getting the quote right but we work so hard on getting the science right that when we do it might take longer but when we do it really does change lives it, it changes the status quo And so today I'm going to speak up in in favor of our our fourth value. Um and they're not right necessarily in terms of importance it's, it's for ease of remembering. Um but I I think honesty especially as embodied in scientific integrity is a uh, super meaningful to me today. All right, so we're trying to build a unique company. It's unique in its culture, it's unique in its commitment to its values, but we also, you know, we do have to build a business. And The business is only going to thrive if we can build something valuable and and ideally something unique. And so I'd like to spend a little time exploring what we do scientifically. I mentioned um that the product aside from a technology platform to develop biomarkers are actual biomarkers and models that allow 
allow us to match patients and drugs. But Luca, maybe you can talk us through a little bit about how we, we start from the science here. You know, what is our approach um, and, and why is that interesting? So since the early days, uh, the company has been focused on transcriptomics. Uh, we first solved the big problem of consistently analyzing transcriptomic data. Uh, we built this beautiful software that's not only still being used, but um, it's just getting a facelift on the 3rd of May um, of this year, totally reworked and refurbished and sleeker and better than before. Right. Not and just then, a facelift, a new transmission. And new tires and, and everything. <laughs> So, so we've got this software that's analyzing NGS sequencing data, but is particularly powerful for transcriptomics. And when it comes to our biomarkers, again, we utilize different kinds of NGS sequencing data to arrive at our features, but mostly we're focusing again on transcriptomics. We want to study cancer biology at the level of transcriptomics. So... RNA sequencing in its many flavors is our main currency. We are trying to do using RNA what traditionally has also been done only with DNA. So focusing on things like repair deficiency or mutations or genomic rearrangements, a lot of this stuff can be done from a single end light, which is RNA sequencing data. And I think it's particularly exciting that we're able to cover more and more cancer biology with just this single analyte. So Micha had mentioned, you know, this idea of biology first as a derivative of our people first philosophy is the way we tackle modeling. Um, Luca, maybe you can comment a little more on what it means to be biology first, you know, practically, not theoretically, and why that's important. What, what's the alternative to being biology first? So I'll, I'll start by explaining our typical interaction with a prospective customer. We frequently work with small, medium-sized pharma that approach us when their phase one trial has completed. They know the drug is safe to use in humans. They're very happy about the three responders in a dozen or so patients that they've tested the drug on, and they want to know what we can model using that data. The answer is not much because who knows why the three people responded, but we can set up the biological context that describes these and other patients. And to do that, we can start using publicly available data or orthogonal data with outcome to you know, similar drugs and things like that. So to set up the phenotypes that will later turn out to correspond with response. So in this way, we truly start with the biology, with the biological hypothesis, rather than in a completely data-driven approach. This has an added benefit that it has a nice biological story to it, which everybody loves, from the translational scientist to the clinician to the health regulator. So if you start by limiting your a modeling space with some thoroughly thought out biological hypothesis, you're much more likely to develop a model that is robust enough to matter in the long run. So that's biology first. But people first uh, in, in the context of our biomarkers also means that we are doubling down on the actual clinical data. Evidence for drug efficacy 
in humans as opposed to preclinical models such as cell lines or mouse models. We've had a couple examples where a model seemed to work fine in, in simple models such as 2D cell cultures, only to find that we cannot translate it into humans. So we learn a lot from our preclinical models, but always aim to start our biomarker discovery using actual human data. Yeah, and one of the biggest challenges in human data is that these data sets are typically small. So clinical studies, especially in the early phases, are in the tens, sometimes hundreds of patients when we're lucky. But we have many such data sets that we harvested over the years. And what we do is we pre-process this data and make them ready to be mined together. We're essentially building a big data asset from these small data sets that we can then coherently mine in our models. The technology that we have to do that, we call a data flywheel for AI. It's our proprietary technology. We also have some patents that helps us bridge these gaps. It's a suite of technology that with every new data set, it makes the value grow exponentially. And I'll give you one example, an analogy. Take Shakespeare data, right? Even all Shakespeare texts are not enough to train a useful language model. You need much more data to do it. ChatGPT uses so much more data, right, from the internet, from the books, digitalized text that's available today. But then also by using Shakespeare data, it's able to infer new novels in a Shakespeare style. We do something similar. We develop a similar technology, but on biomedical data. Oh, that's really helpful. You know, there is the approach and, and something that machine learning is, is good at is you pour a ton of data in. And you ask the machine to, to identify patterns. But that presupposes that you do have a ton of data. And, and Mika, as you mentioned that specifically with regards to humans in the clinic, you may not, you likely don't have data sets of that size. But maybe you can talk to us about some of the, the specific kind of technological challenges that we've sought solutions for, and in some cases successfully, around you know, working with smaller data sets, but also, you know, where, where do we use some of these fancier, flashier, big data AI tools in our workflow? It's how we address the bias, really. So we may have data acquired with different technologies, like um, microarrays or RNA-seq. And we have some novel technology that we call, it's a feature selection technique, essentially, called gene transferability that we can use to identify genes that behave consistently across different sources of bias, let's call it. And it may be technology bias, like I gave the example before. It may be a tissue bias that we address or other kinds of biases. I think it's, um, it's worth noting because a lot of, there's still a lot of debate or maybe just kind of confusion over sort of the, the terminology around machine learning and AI, and, and now it's on everyone's tongue, right? Because ChatGPT has made this huge splash. So people are talking about that and other large language model type tools. And, you know, I, I had a conversation last night with a reporter from a, just a major newspaper who was saying, you know, how are these going to be used in, in healthcare? How are they going to get it right? 
And my sense was the good news is the regulators, while excited about machine learning based technologies, are also cautious, which is wise, um, because they have human lives on the you know the other side of their decisions, and interested in really understanding what the models are learning. And so because we aspire to build clinical devices or AI that will be part of a clinical device, we've gone a long way towards trying to understand what the AI is learning. So Mika, can you describe some of our efforts into you know, what we call explainable AI, into unboxing the black box? Yeah, sure. Well, biology is complex. I, I don't have to explain this to biologists. And machine learning really is, is just a tool that allows you to digest data and then identify patterns, extract knowledge, essentially, from this data, knowledge on biology, right? And then ultimately help us make informed decisions based on that. But in order to make these decisions, we need to understand what the model has learned. And we use different approaches to that, from investigating model mechanics to investigating the model under different assumptions, explaining the features on the inputs, the interactions between features, and a whole lot of visualization. So having interactive visualization to, to query the model, visualize the internals of the model, but also the results helps us a great deal in interpreting how the model works. It's actually one of the key aspects in FDA applications that we do to include model interpretation under different assumptions and really in detail explain the model mechanics. And it's not just explaining this one model, it's also about learning from the model. In chess, we've seen example of AI trained to play chess that we were then able to identify new strategies in chess used by this AI new strategies that were not taught before by the grandmasters in chess. So the whole community was able to learn from the patterns that then model applied in practice. No, I think that's super important. And I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and maybe even zoom out to why is this kind of work important in the first place? You know, why do we focus on, you know, what's collectively known as precision medicine, you know, building tools to help guide therapies to patients. The sad truth is that most new medicines in development are going to fail to get clinical approval, even if they're good medicines for some people, because they're not good enough for everybody. And I think we're not likely to find a silver bullet medicine that's going to cure all of cancer or all of neurodegenerative disease, right? It's going to be a lot of medicines that need to be personalized based on individual patient biology. One of the challenges with kind of the state-of-the-art diagnostics today, so if you have a tool that says, all right, this patient should get drug A or should not get drug A, if the answer is negative, if the answer is that patient should not get drug A, very rarely does the diagnostic tell you what you should do. So in other words, you get a yes or no answer where the yes is interesting and informative and there's an action item, but the no is not very interesting. The no doesn't tell you much. And because of our ability to really unpack our models and have models that describe the biology, as Mika and Luca, you've explained so well, I think in our hands, the no answer is also really interesting and informative, right? Because we can go back and learn something about the biology of the patients and potentially point them in the direction of another therapy. So, you know, Luca, I'd love to hear a little bit of your experience as we've tackled problems in, in different cancer settings for different kinds of drugs. How do you take oncology as, as kind of a therapeutic area to work in? Why is it worthwhile, but also, you know, why is it particularly hard? I've been speaking with clinicians a lot lately, 
And as a scientist, I'm truly baffled by how little we know about the drugs that we're administering to our patients daily. You might have blockbuster drugs that have been on the market for 20 years. They are tackling some basic biology. And, you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And nobody knows why. And sometimes they work better if you give them in combination with the chemotherapy, but nobody knows why or which patients would actually benefit from a combo versus just a chemo alone versus a particular drug. And clinicians freely admit that often this is a coin toss decision uh, that they make using their intuition that has been honed through decades of clinical practice rather than through some scientifically discovered decision in three, which is really mind-boggling. How is that even possible? How have we not been able to accumulate the world's clinical knowledge to drive better decision uh, in a more data-driven way? So if you've attended any cancer-related conference in the last couple of years, everybody has their mouth full of precision medicine, but we're still such a long way from actually applying that even to basic treatments, right, like radiation and chemotherapy. So I think this is scientifically a a very exciting area of research that has an enormous impact on the lives of people. So I find uh, a lot of personal satisfaction to be able to work in the area. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think it's important for the audience to remember, you know, oncology or, or cancer is not one disease. It's loads of diseases. And the true fanatics about personalized medicine might even tell you that that cancer is as many diseases as you have patients, right? That each patient's disease really is their own. But to Luca's point, you know, what we can do is try to generalize those patients into an actionable number of groups where we really understand what's specific about their disease and what's treatable about it. You know, and in this regard, we've endeavored to build a technology suite, a platform that really does connect these two sides of the coin, the stakeholders, actually, there are probably more than two sides, the many sides of the dice around the stakeholders in precision medicine. So you've got, on the one hand, the drug developers, right? These are pharmaceutical companies and biopharmaceutical companies. And on the other, the diagnostics companies who are the ones who will actually develop assays and commercial tests from biomarkers. And of course, there are other stakeholders like payers and providers, clinicians, even investors. And what we're trying to do is to build a platform that can provide solutions ultimately for patients, but through all of these different avenues that can help drug companies get drugs to market successfully. It can help diagnostics companies build their products to make sure drugs are being delivered to the right patients. For clinicians, we want to be able to give them answers and and likewise for patients. On the flip side, you've got the hospitals and the insurance companies that don't want to be giving drugs that aren't going to work. And even the biggest blockbuster cancer drugs only work for about a third of the patients who get it, right? And so that leaves a a lot of patients who are taking medicine that costs a lot of money and makes them sick. And, you know, the last category around investors, pretty tumultuous right now in the market, but we need to think about where we put our R&D dollars and we should probably do it in a smarter way. Drug development is so expensive that drugs are expensive. So maybe if we are able to allocate cash more efficiently through the development process, then we can get to a point where medicine is is less expensive and, and more equitable. Anyway, the direction I want to steer the conversation is back towards the technology a little bit. I spend a lot of time having this discussion, which frankly, I'm a little bit tired of about 
whether artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is kind of overhyped in the space. And the reason why I'm tired of it is maybe that felt true two or three years ago when investors were pouring tons of money into companies just because they had a .ai in their URL. But now it's, it's becoming pretty clear that these technologies have substance. They are tools, not silver bullets, right? They're tools that we use. But I think, you know, Mika, especially, you know, coming from the tradition, the academic tradition you do, you know, been trained formally and having a PhD in artificial intelligence from a really wonderful computer science faculty in Slovenia, which happened to be, you know, one of the places where machine learning, as we know it today, grew up. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think about applying these tools, where you think machine learning is especially good, when simpler approaches or, or maybe more traditional approaches are necessary, and, and kind of how that fits into Genialis's overall data science strategy. So I talked a, a bit about data flywheel and data management, pre-processing, and so on, but we really address the whole model lifecycle, right? And we do that through implementing good machine learning practices. Scientists, especially in the academics, I think, would usually spend a lot of time experimenting with the models, tweaking the models, making them run better, inventing the algorithms. But we go one step further here in Genialis. We wanted to take that science that we developed in the lab and to make it ready for production. But innovation is important to us still, right? And what we do is we partner with academic partners and we form collaborations. One example is with the Faculty of Computer Science in Slovenia where we provide more the uh, application site and validation of the models that they would develop to bring science to patients, essentially. Oh, that's super helpful. So Luca, I mentioned that our core product today is this platform that connects the, the stakeholders. It connects the pharma side to the diagnostic side and in the future to these other, these other groups. But maybe, you know, since this falls in your wheelhouse, maybe you can give us a bit of a sneak peek at what our future products might look like, going beyond the platform, but to more of a traditional sense of the word product. Yeah, in the past couple of years, our business model has been to work with pharma companies and you know develop biomarkers that follow their clinical assets, that follow their biological hypothesis. I'm very happy that we now have the means to actually apply the same approach to biomarker development to developing our own biomarkers according to our own ideas about the cancer biology. And I hope that in a couple of years from now, we'll be able to launch our wholly owned biomarkers to the market and then partner them with interested pharma for prospective validation and ultimately diagnostic device development. So this will be going from a sort of a general platform to very specific biomarkers. Long-term vision, however, is to combine those individual models, those individual uh, snapshots of cancer biology in something that is much greater than the sum of its parts. We call that a supermodel. And that will be a, a sort of an integrated view of cancer biologies that covers so many different aspects of the biology hopefully using just a single type of input data. I think that, that will be really transformative. The power of a supermodel 
which like Luca said, is a model of models, is that it captures the interactions between these biologies that we model today. Yeah, I think this is super important because it's an exciting time to be a drug developer, especially in, well, in, in all disease areas, but in oncology, we have a whole bunch of relatively new or novel chemistries that are allowing us to drug disease with more specificity than ever before. And here I'm thinking like antibody conjugated drugs, antibody uh, drug conjugates rather, I'm sorry, where you, you have a chemical warhead attached to an antibody that guides the warhead right to the cancer cell, right? That should work great. And some of them work well, but, but none of them work great. Likewise, you can have protein degraders uh, that home in on misregulated genes and proteins in the cells and, and that are specifically misregulated in the cancer cells and, and degrade them. What these new classes of drugs have allowed us to do is go after targets that were once considered white whales that are, you know, we've known have driven cancer. We've known this for decades, but we've never been able to drug them. And now we can. The problem is most of these white whale targets sit at the middle of all this complex cellular machinery, right? They're, they're the, the things that direct traffic in a very complicated milieu. And so knocking them down can have really unpredictable impacts. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it causes all sorts of other effects. And I think our approach to modeling that we've described around, you know, focusing on the biology, embracing the complexity, developing models that learn interactions will be absolutely critical to making sure these, these sort of new generations of drugs are approved and approved for the right patients. So I'm super excited by this vision you described, Luke, of rolling out Genialis-owned biomarkers developed on our responder ID platform, just in the way we do it with commercial partners today, but based on some of the therapeutic hypotheses that we've developed internally and you know, really bringing these to bear on exciting new areas of, of cancer drugs. And, and going back to what we talked about earlier, this is only possible if you start biology first, right? So our models are not modeling response to any particular drug, right? Rather, they're setting up phenotypic environment or landscapes that makes sense in certain therapeutic circumstances. So as you widen the spectrum of circumstances that are covered by these models, mm -hmm. you, of course, will get a, a transformative view of the cancer biology. I want to kind of go back to where we started a little bit talking about the team, though. So, you know, what we're describing requires, obviously, cancer biologists, right? A fair amount of knowledge of, of the domain. But it also clearly requires people who know how to do data science. And there's a lot of in-between, right? There's the traditional bioinformatics, there's software, we've got to engineer systems, right? And then of course, we're not doing this in a vacuum. We've got commercial partners, we've got scientific collaborators, both of computational faculty, but we're building loads of data partnerships at top tier cancer centers. This takes a village. And so, Tiasha, maybe you can describe to listeners sort of what our team composition is today and how it's evolving. But also, you know, just from your view in the trenches as, as our head of people and culture, you know, what's the challenge of putting together a team of, of such mixed skill sets? It's definitely a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because it's best to work with a diverse crowd, with people from different walks of life. And I think that's a good recipe for success. We've reorganized quite a few times in the past years since I've been with the company. And every time we managed to improve the way we work together. A couple of years ago, we introduced a matrix where we now have verticals 
And those are crossed with the horizontals of projects people work on. And this has proven to be quite successful. So it's a bit more difficult to manage. You have to think of both sides of the matrix and make sure that people know who their manager is, how to organize their work, realize that demands can come from two different sides. But I think we're all flexible enough to know how to manage that well and still keep organized and get to where we want to be. It also is an opportunity in the sense that people get to choose what they want to do. Sometimes it's happened quite a few times that we had bioinformaticians move to the data science department or the other way around. So um, this gives us the opportunity to keep some excellent staff members we've had for a while and we've worked with them well and they um, came to a point in their lives where they wanted to try something new or a little bit different and uh, we had the option to uh, offer that to them within Genialis and uh, let them pursue whatever their, their passion is. So yes, we're quite different, but I think we work together very well. And the important thing is to just keep evolving, to, uh, to pay attention to, to how we're working, to see whether there are some blockages or things that could be moving better and uh, to, you know, see value in in changing how we work to not say okay we set this up a year ago or two years ago and this is how we're doing things no we constantly question the way we do things and we're not afraid of doing them differently if that means that uh, we're able to do it better one of the challenges we have in the R&D team is communication and uh, R&D really is a mix of data scientists and biologists and mathematicians. And we really are very different people, not just in our motivations, right? What motivates us to work is inherently different, but also in how we think. So bridging this gap between data scientists and biologists, right? Not just data science and biology, but also the people is really a challenge. And we invest a lot of effort in how to improve how we work together, how to translate the needs of biologists to data scientists and vice versa. And I think in the end, it's also what makes us successful. Yeah, you know, figuring out how to come up with a common language can be tricky. And, you know, not everyone needs to speak all the entirely same language, but we do need to have some shared lexicon and also interpreters, right? So I think one of the most valuable things that someone like Luca brings to our team, because he's both a life scientist and a, a bioinformatician, um, is the ability to translate between the groups, or at least to, to help establish that, that common language. What I find though, maybe the biggest challenge is, you know, you want to have motivated employees. So you can have people who come in and draw their inspiration from the mission of the company, or from the culture, or from some other aspect of their work. And so it's not enough just to have a company that's aiming to do good, but the culture is garbage. It's not enough just to build a feel-good culture, but to do something that's really unimportant where people aren't inspired by the mission. So I think it's we have to try to get it right in terms of figuring out what are the, the key motivators for all sorts of different types of people. And I think we do. I think we have mission-aligned employees who, sure, they probably enjoy the culture, but they're really interested in, in the impact. I think we've got some technologists who just love the tech stack. They love solving really hard problems with advanced computer tools. And we've got others who just, they value the, the autonomy. They have a value working in an environment that puts people first. 
And, and I think we can find examples of those among all of our colleagues. And we listen. We listen to the team members, and this is how we find out what it is that motivates them. And for some, it's something completely different, something that we don't even you know, consider. But we, we talk a lot to everyone, and uh, as Micha said, communication is key. And we are still small enough to be able to have an authentic connection with, with everyone on the team and uh, to be able to figure out what it is that makes them do well. This is sometimes difficult to do, particularly when we have to cross geographies and time zones and establishing this uh, connection that is human first and, you know, co-worker second is sometimes difficult to achieve. So, you know, I always appreciate the opportunity to travel for work, to visit our colleagues that, you know, work remotely from me or enjoy our multi-day off-site retreats that we do with everybody. These typically have a working agenda that always invariably ends up being the less important part of the retreat because uh, so frequently we need this uh, time together so bad. And then once back in our own offices, we can get everything solved because we've reestablished a human connection. I think, again, just being open-minded that not everyone is going to be motivated by entirely the same things and, and taking Tiasha's point to heart that listening and not necessarily imposing our, our version of the truth on everyone is, is really important. You know, ending up with a diverse workplace where people really do come at things from different vantages with different opinions is much more rewarding than the other way. And what I really love is on our monthly um, highlights meeting. So this is something we started doing during COVID. We have a monthly all hands call and some people are in the office and others zoom in. And over the previous week, we'll have each added two or three highlights to a, a big list. These are highlights from our personal lives, highlights from our work lives, whatever we, you know, whatever was meaningful to us over the past month and we upvote them, right? And so by the time the meeting rolls around, three lucky people have been chosen to present their highlights to the team. And what strikes me every time is that I'm surprised. I'm surprised by learning something new about a teammate, about a talent they have, an interest they have, about seeing the passion that, that each person has for something totally different than anything I've thought about before. And uh, that's just literally, it's, it's the, the biggest joy I get from some of these interactions is just seeing how rich the lives are of the people we work with. And I think we're a bit unique in that respect. I haven't uh, yet spoken with anyone at any company that has that sort of meeting. And uh, when I onboard people, they're really surprised to hear about highlights. And they say, so the whole company gets together to listen about mostly informal things, you know, personal stuff for like an hour and or two. That's a lot of time. And, and, and you write the document and then people take time to prepare the presentations and it just seems like a big investment, but in, it's an investment that's really well worth it. Not just during COVID when we were all scattered, you know, uh, to our homes, but uh, even now we do try to take time and, you know, have a bit of a chit chat uh, at the beginning of every meeting and then talk at the office. But uh, Still, even the people that I see regularly uh, surprise me as well, the same as, as Rafe mentioned uh, during the presentations. And uh, it's just really precious to be able to, to get to know people better and um, 
that just makes it so much easier to, to collaborate. And similarly, we had a um, family and community picnic uh, just a few weeks ago, taking the time out of our days to, you know, organize that. It felt like, oh, do we even have the time for this? I and mean, we're just going to hang with people and their families for a couple of hours. It's not going to be anything special. But, you know, as soon as people got there and the crowd grew bigger and the conversations went alive and kids started playing football and then the adults joined them and it's just the, the, the atmosphere and uh, the feeling that you get from that just motivates you to get back to the office the next day and uh, do something together because people do become friends. I, I really hate it when people talk about you know companies as families. I, I think that's wrong if they're telling you you're part of the family. It's it's not supposed to be family, but friends is who we are mostly. And um, by also incorporating uh, family members uh, into our events, it just connects us uh, in a different way. And it's always such a pleasure to you know get to know their significant others and get to know their lives outside of work. And it fills us with uh, yeah motivation and, and energy. And uh, it's something I cherish about this place. Yeah, and this personal connection is also a driver of productivity in the end, right? It's like being a great student in a small app and you connect with your peers and you bounce ideas to advance your science. Now we try to apply that to the whole company so that the whole company gets more connected. You do work also just in informal conversation with your colleagues at lunch, right? And sometimes it's the most efficient way of aligning on certain issues that would otherwise not come up. Yeah, I think we could probably talk about this culture building aspect for a while, but I want to go around the horn and just finish up with hot seat questions, 15, 30 seconds, a minute, no more on you know what your real goals are through your eyes for the company and yourself in the next two to three years, but also what we're trying to achieve in the long term. Just some vision out on the horizon of what you'd like to look back 10 years from now and say we got done. I could go first. I would really like to advance our cancer models. I think we've got some pretty neat ideas right now, both, you know, just technological innovation as well as new insights into cancer biology. And I think if we manage to put that together the way it now seems possible, the future will be very bright for us. I'd like to see that come to life over the course of the next two to three years, and then just do more of that in the years to come to build an ever grander picture of cancer biology. As a scientist, to me, that is quite expiring. Yeah. So today we build models that model different aspects of human biology and we validate these models in a regulatory setting and we deliver them to clinical practice. But we have already started building this super model, a model of models, right? And in 10 years time, I would like to see that grow. I would like to see it cover the hallmarks of cancer to harvest the interactions between these hallmarks and to put that to practice to inform precision oncology which ultimately would guide clinical practice. So to me, as always, it's about people and culture. And even though Rave said, uh, you know, we've heard a bit about that, I uh, still want to mention that 
for me, the biggest goal, the biggest challenge is to preserve the culture that we have as we grow from a startup to maybe a scale up, as we go grow from 30 people to 100 to a few hundred, that we manage to preserve our authenticity and manage to stay efficient and uh, manage to keep Genialis um, as it is in the sense that it's an amazing place to work and um, to keep the the authenticity and the fun that we have together. I want us to be able to preserve the fun and um, do so even as we grow into this huge successful company and as we IPO, as we go for the stars. Yeah, well, you guys all stole my answers. So in, in the interest of trying to have something a little bit different or nuanced to say, in the short run, in the next couple of years, I really want to reach the point where we've proved that this particular approach to building biological models works. We know it does in our hands, but that works at scale. And I think we're going to have the proof of concept that this is a way of, of actually bringing tools, precision medicine tools to the masses. And a lot of it, the devil lies in the details. We've worked so hard on problems that we thought were solved, but actually weren't solved sufficiently well to make certain kinds of data work in, in a clinical context, in a human biology context. And so now the question is putting the pieces together to show that, that we can actually build a machine, build a, a wheel that, that gets smarter with every turn. And I think we're going to do that in the next couple of years. I think we're going to have really, really compelling proofs of that. So then 10 years out, the question is, what do we do with that proof? And what I'd love to do is be synonymous with precision medicine. I'd like for all oncology, all cancer to be precision, to be precise. But there's no reason we have to stop there. Right. This approach to thinking about the fundamental biology underlying disease and to capturing that using the most sophisticated computational tools at, at our disposal, that will work everywhere. I think we're standing at an inflection point where these AI-based technologies are really about to take the world by storm for good, mostly, maybe for bad in some contexts. But if we deploy them responsibly and we really focus on getting the science right, and we focus on getting the science right because we keep our eyes trained on the people that we're trying to serve. That's going to be hugely impactful. It'd be awesome to look back 10 years from now and progress feels slow while you're, you're slogging through it, but to look and just see how far we've come. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. I know this was meant to be a, a Friday for deep work and reflection. We didn't even really talk about our Friday policies, but that's okay. That'll be for the next episode. Uh, but it's, it's fun to get to chat with you guys where it's not just figuring out operational headaches and setting strategy. Thank you, Ray, for the invite. Thanks. This was fun. This has been episode 30 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.